Jay Richards is a co-author of The Price of Panic, how the tyranny of experts turned a pandemic into a catastrophe. It was written with professors William Briggs and Douglas Axe and raises important questions about the management of COVID-19 and the influence of political and media forces. Jay is a professor at Catholic University, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, the executive editor of The Stream, author of more than two dozen books. Jay, welcome. It's great to be with you. Can you tell us briefly about the other authors? Because we need to give them a bit of a go, first of all, and what they brought to the table. Absolutely. I mean, the book, obviously, we had to write under a very tight deadline. William Briggs is a professional statistician, and Doug Axe is a professor of biology. And needless to say, the, the COVID-19 pandemic involved all of those things. It had to do with public policy, with the economic consequences of uh, our response, but also obviously had a lot to do with science and statistics. And though a lot of people probably don't know it, most of what started the panic was uh, predictive modeling. It was essentially a very speculative use of statistics that led to these enormous numbers of deaths that were pre pre predicted early in the spring from COVID-19. Well, that's statistics. And so the three of us, I uh, happened to know my other uh, uh, co-authors, and all three of us had an instinct in March that this was not going to probably turn out like the uh, the sort of official experts were saying. And so that's, that's really what con convinced us that we needed to write the book. We couldn't stop the past. We couldn't stop 2020. But we honestly wanted to try to help prevent us from at least trying this again in 2021. The book's conclusions. Can you take us through some of these? Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of key conclusion is that if you look at the actual evidence of lockdowns, that is, you look to see our assumption is that the, especially the government imposed lockdowns made a difference, that presumably they, they reduced cases and hospitalizations and deaths. But if you actually look at the data, if you look at the case curves and the death curves from all the countries and all the states in the U.S., some of which locked down and some of which didn't, uh, unfortunately, you discover that there's no evidence that the lockdowns actually made any discernible difference. And in fact, if I were to show you all those those case curves, you know, all the charts, take up a couple of pages in our book, uh, and take the lockdown dates off of the figures, you'd never be able to guess when the government lockdowns happened. So the the essentially what uh, we conclude is that the coronavirus is utterly indifferent to government-imposed lockdowns. That matters because the cost of the lockdowns was so dramatic. We all hoped that maybe, okay, the costs are heavy, but maybe the benefits would outweigh that. Unfortunately, we think that the lockdowns are almost all pain and no gain. Can you tell us more about the full cost or price that we've paid for the COVID-19 panic? And, and a, a while ago, in, in fact, months ago, um, commentators, uh, scientists and doctors and the medical profession were saying that maybe the cure is going to be worse than the actual disease. Well, that's unfortunately, that's funny because it's what uh, President Donald Trump actually said in March when he was trying to decide what to advise based upon what the, his scientific advisors were telling him. He said, we don't want the cure to be worse than the disease. Nevertheless, he said, two very smart people came into my office and told me that if we don't lock down the country, 2.2 million Americans are going to die. That was the only information he had, so he advised lockdowns. Uh, we very quickly found out that, in fact, that those numbers came from the Imperial College London 
predictive model and were almost certainly mistaken because they were based on an extremely inflated estimate of the infection fatality rate uh, of, of the coronavirus. Um, unfortunately, that's essentially what most countries did, with a few exceptions, certainly the United States and Australia and the UK, uh, all ultimately advised lockdowns. And so, of course, anyone that's had an, a lockdown imposed upon them hopes that at least for all that pain, there will be some gain. But unfortunately, I think that original fear that the, the cure is going to be worse than the disease is going to prove to be true. Lockdowns are a great way, though, of controlling the community, your, uh, your constituents. It's also a great way of pushing through laws and changing the way we view society and taking away our, our freedoms too, isn't it? It is. I mean, that's what's extraordinary about it is that if somebody had asked me a year ago um, if we would have a set of government policies in which virtually all business people would be told they can't open their businesses, uh, the religious worshipers would be told you can't go to worship, you can't go to mass, uh, you can't go to synagogue, uh, all the schools would be closed, and everyone would be told they essentially need to hunger down in their house – I would have thought, well, what would happen? That that would, ha- you know, is it an alien invasion or something like that? I mean, what would justify that? Mm. Um, but of course, it was a public health crisis, and I think that's honestly the thing that we're going to need to learn is that a public health crisis is, in some ways, if you're a if you're a despot or would be despot or dictator, there's really no better tool than a public health crisis because not only are we concerned for ourselves, we're not only concerned, we all fear sickness and death. Uh, but in this case, we also, of course, rightly fear harming other people. And I think that's in some ways why um, most of the developed world complied so easily with the lockdown orders, because we weren't told you need to do this for your own good. We were told you need to do this for your fellow human beings, for your fellow Australians or, or fellow Americans. So in some ways, there was a kind of moral jujitsu in which our proper concern for our fellow human beings was actually used against us. And I think led us to comply uh, in circumstances that under or normal circumstances, we would have rebelled. We would have refused to do it. It's uh, really interesting with the, uh, the U.S. elections. Um, basically, 74 million of those who voted um, believe what they're being told, that you, know, you must stay mm-hmm. inside, basically. You must be careful of this terrible disease. And I think you've mentioned that the uh, disease really, the, the, the death curve isn't a whole lot different than the last five years. No, it looked, I mean, these, it looks sort of similar. I mean, essentially what we know, and this is from the official CDC numbers in the United States, is that if you're over 70 uh, and you have several health problems, which is a two and a half so-called core morbidities, yeah, you're, you're about, it's about 5% chance that if you catch the, the, the bug that it might kill you. On the other hand, if you don't have any of those problems, especially if you're a young child, you're much, much more at risk actually of dying of the flu than dying of COVID-19. In fact, you're a thousand times less likely. It's a Less dangerous to you if you're young than if you're old and, and infirm. And so that we actually know that. Uh, uh, unlike, say, uh, February and March where we didn't know that, we actually know how dangerous this is or in, in, uh, in case how undangerous mm-hmm. it actually is for most people. And yet we're acting as if this is the Spanish flu, even though we know for a fact that it's not. The, the, the issue of fear from, you know, from the government backed up by the media because it makes a good clickbait because someone somewhere mm-hmm. has got, may have the coronavirus, so it makes you click and the narrative then is a, uh, that you have to be careful because you might just fall off the perch before you know it. Do you think the, that, that will change, that attitude will change, that we will say, no, you told us porkies? <laughs> and they did. Well, yeah. 
I mean, at the moment, at least in the United States, I would say about half the population is still terrified. My co-authors and I, when we first worked on the book, we thought, well, it's going to come out in October. It will be a sort of after-action conversation because by the summer, people will realize, okay, this is not as deadly as we thought it was. Um, you know, we'd start getting accurate information from the media, and then by the fall, we would be having a rational conversation. Mm. Here we are, though, now in November, and um, fully half of the population is actually tel- terrified. I can mm. tell you in my neighborhood here in Washington, Washington, D.C., that walking around in the middle of the sunny day, many people are walking around terrified with masks. And so um, the the question is, how did that happen? Well, it didn't happen because people are reading the scientific journals or even looking at uh, the CDC website. We're getting it from the media itself. We are living through the first planetary-wide social contagion, and it could not have happened uh, but for certainly the role of traditional media, but especially the magnifying power of social media in which you get real-time, high-definition access uh, to your eyeballs, to Mm. your retina, so that a man falls over on the street in China, um, someone takes a picture of it and uploads it to social media, and then hundreds of millions of people see it within a few minutes, so that Mm. these very unusual outlier events Mm. uh, suddenly appear to be representative events. That is just, that's essentially designed ultimately to terrify us, and I think unless we learn to consume social media in a different way, that is, unless we adapt our brains essentially to this new way of, of digesting information, I think that this is going to continue to happen. Really interesting in the US, um, we think, I think there's six corporations that control 90% of the media in the US. So how do you cut through that, 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 that garbage, that, that propaganda, the, 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 uh, the instrument to control? I mean, it's very, very hard, though. I could say that uh, social media and the social media platforms are are sort of two-edged swords. So, of course, uh, anyone that's on Facebook or on Twitter knows that they have done everything they possibly can to try to manage the flow of information. I've had videos of myself on YouTube that they get pulled off for sort of arbitrary reasons. At the same time, it's very, very hard to control it centrally. I mean, the very nature of something is that if I can tell you, uh, if you have a video pulled, um, that often actually increases the publicity. I think right now in the United States, we have a regulatory problem in that Twitter and Facebook uh, and YouTube are treated as if they're neutral platforms regulatorily. So in other words, you, you can't sue them like you could sue a publisher, but they're acting like publishers. So I think that we actually, we have to fix that in the law so that if they're going to exercise editorial judgment, they need to be under the same, essentially the same jurisdiction and the same statutes as a publisher. If they're going to act like publishers, they should be treated legally as a publisher. At the moment, they're having their cake and eating it too. And as you say, they're they're essentially controlling uh, almost entirely the flow of information. I think it's a very dangerous thing. Really interesting. Uh, it's a bit left field of, of this conversation. Uh, Breitbart itself had they noticed that once the uh, the new algorithms were implemented by google that they just flatlined so you know the the social media the googles the um, all the other media organizations certainly can control not only the information that we're searching for but the distortion of the truth that's right and i i think part of that uh, the the reality of that is not yet sunk in i can say i'm a college professor and students tend to treat for instance google searches as if they're genuinely organic as if they're going to yeah. sort of find what they're looking for and they don't realize that no these are highly tended and managed 
pieces of information. And just like if you were to grow up in the Soviet Union in the 1980s, you would have known that your media sources were highly biased mm. uh, in a particular way. I think until we learn that, we're going to continue to be propagandized uh, by social media. As soon as we learn it, I think we essentially need to get develop a critical distance from our, our preferred sources of media and especially from the social media uh, networks and platforms, which unfortunately until now most of us treat as if they're neutral sources. But the, the mainstream media also rely on Twitter, Facebook and stuff to get their information from. So, I mean, where do we go next? Maybe we could go to Mars. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. I mean, that's the irony is that mm. the media itself is beholden to these social media platforms. I mean, the reality, we, we saw this with the New York Post. I mean, it's I think it's the fourth widest circulation publication in the United States, founded by a founding father, Alexander Hamilton. And yet for several weeks during the run-up to the election, uh, Twitter had essentially banned the New York Post from social media, had banned their their, their, their native um, Twitter channel. And so, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. I, I'm hoping, though, that the kind of shamelessness of these social media platforms will lead the government, at least in the United States, to do something so that they, they quit benefiting from this treatment as neutral platforms when, in fact, they're anything but that. Have you ever seen such change or thought this change with our perception and what we're receiving and how we're now behaving would happen and happened so quickly. It reminds me of a uh, 1984 on steroids. There is a kind of dystopian element to mm. this because it's, it's very hard to imagine uh, that populations around the world would so quickly comply with these orders. I mean, uh, in the United States, we, cert- we, we take our religious freedoms very seriously. And yet I can tell you there was almost not a peep of objection. Uh, I'm Catholic. And I can tell you that virtually no diocese in the country thought to uh, actually complain about the fact that they were told us effectively that they had to close their churches, that mm. they had to close masses, uh, even though, of course, Costco and grocery stores were still open, liquor stores were still open, uh, but you couldn't go to mass. I mean, in any other circumstance, this would be considered outrageous, but uh, we, we all essentially complied and we've mm. continued to do it for months. What aspect do you think of our world has changed permanently since this panic? I think that uh, the, that would-be despots and governments now have intimate knowledge of exactly what works to cause populations to comply. I know in the United States, if we had been told to do the things that we've done just simply for our own good or because we're going to get in trouble or something like that. Americans across the political spectrum would have objected. The right would have been talking about the First Amendment. The left would have been talking about fascism. But as it was, we we complied. And it was, I think, because of being a public health uh, uh, problem. I mean, the reality and what we learned in working on this book is that public health bureaucracies, whether at the World Health Organizations or national public health bureaucracies, um, they have grown up over the last several decades. In some ways, I, I think could be the tool of choice in the future for political control. In, in the 20th century, it might have been uh, nationalizing industries for economic purposes. Uh, I think the growth of the state is more likely than not to come under the guise of public health crises in the 21st century. We've read that wholesale shutdowns really have never been used or uh, advocated by public health officials in the past. Mustn't do it. Then why do we do it this time? Was it because of the World Health Organization, which is a great media arm or publicity arm for the Chinese government? Well, as it turns out, they are they were carrying water for the Chinese government. Mm. The World Health Organization is supposed to be the public health arm of the UN. Uh, but we learned, unfortunately, in the spring that they were also helping the, the Chinese uh, communists cover things up. 
Um, the idea of a population-wide lockdown, as you said, had never been tried. Even the World Health Organization a year ago said it would be unlikely to work to stop a pandemic. Uh, the, it came about essentially as a kind of a science experiment in the early 2000s. Uh, it worked its way through public health bureaucracies, but it had never been tried. What we used, have done for centuries is quarantines, in which you quarantine and isolate those who are sick, and then you try to do, uh, add special protection to people that are especially at risk. Um, it, you could essentially think of population-wide lockdowns as hypotheses waiting to be tested. They were essentially waiting for the next pandemic to test this. 2020 was the year in which they tested it. The human race in most countries were the subjects of the experiment, and the evidence is now in, and we know that lockdowns uh, simply don't do what they're supposed to do. And that's what we think the most important message of our book is that whatever you hoped for, lockdowns just simply do not stop the spread of a, a pandemic, and so they have massive costs and virtually no benefits. So was this just a, a function of panic on the part of the governments to lock everything down you you can't I mean, look at look at victoria i mean was this just a, a panic from some very uneducated people because it seems that way i mean well, I there's think- no data looked at i mean they and instead of admitting they've made a mistake they went kept going along the same same path of making that same mistake but on a grander scale I think that's actually the key because, of course, in in March and April, we didn't know what we were dealing with. China and the World Health Organization covered up the the origins of the bug. So there were crucial weeks where none of us actually had clear information about how dangerous the bug was. Um, And then the lockdowns as an idea were already sort of embedded in public health organizations and public health bureaucracies. What happened is we tried the lockdowns. And then because of the natural incentives of democratic governments, uh, they don't want to admit that they've made a mistake. And so having locked down, um, the best argument for politicians is that, okay, well, uh, many people still died, but far more people would have died if we hadn't locked down. And so they're now sort of on the path of justifying lockdowns and can't ever pivot away from it. And so I honestly think that's what is happening at this point is that public health Officials and politicians just simply are not willing to say, okay, we tried lockdowns, they were a bad idea, let's not do that again. They just keep saying, let's, let's just keep trying it again and again, unfortunately. And that's it's kind of the natural incentives of a democratically elected, elected uh, a government is that they never want to admit that they made a mistake. You could almost divide the, uh, whether it's Australia, New Zealand, England, uh, the US, you could divide it into, into uh, two camps. The ones that wanted the lockdown, they had money coming in. Mm-hmm. They either had a job or they had some pension plan or something. Yes. On the other side, it's either you keep working or you find yourself out on the street. So it's, 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 it was a really scary and it still is a very scary time because Joe Biden mm-hmm. says this big dark winter is about to come upon us all. We have Pfizer playing games because of the uh, the, uh, mm-hmm. the the vaccine. Who knows what the uh, what what it will do? Why did they leave the uh, the uh, the notification that they have a vaccine until after Donald uh, or after the mm-hmm. election? So all these questions. Mm-hmm. And the question is: Is social media and the media did they play a really big part in this misinformation? backed up by China. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think it was necessarily coordinated or any conspiracy, but you don't need a conspiracy if everyone's thinking exactly alike and if you have the right conditions. Uh, The average American in a poll in July thought that 
Um, something like 9% of the U.S. population had died of COVID-19 in the previous months. 9%. Well, oh the reality is it was 0.06%. Mm. So people in the U.S. thought it's 150 times more deadly than it actually is. That was entirely the result of media and social media. That's not from people checking the tables at the Centers for Disease Control. That uh, the, the responsibility for that is squarely on the shoulders of media and social media. And I think if, if we don't learn that lesson now, they'll just keep doing it to us again in the future. Really interesting. Before the next question, I just was uh, thinking about the, the celebrations uh, and could be premature celebrations in the streets, mm-hmm. say in New York, with um, all the Biden supporters again clashing with the Antifa and the Black Lives Matters because you know, they weren't all together. So we're not in this all together. Mm-hmm. And we had now factions forming there, but it was really interesting. They're all out in the street dancing away and having a wow of a time sharing bottles of drink around. And what happened to COVID? I, I thought you weren't allowed to do that. <laughs> well, I thought that this was going to happen in the summer when we had the protests in the streets and the riots. Mm. Is that I thought, well, at, at least people will realize, okay, maybe the COVID lockdowns are over because, of course, politicians and even public health officials in the U.S. said, oh, no, these protests are perfectly okay. Somehow, I guess the virus... Um, recognize that, you know, these were sort of socially acceptable activities or something. Um, but that didn't happen. We just we, we went right back into the talk of the lockdowns. And then, of course, we've here in the last week, as you said, we had uh, uh, um, Chuck Schumer in New York uh, celebrating in the streets, passing champagne mm. bottles around tens of thousands of people thronged, presumably two days before they were locked up and wearing masks in their um, uh, in their apartments. I, I don't quite know what to think of this. I think with some politicians, there's a kind of cynicism. They, mm. they officially say that they're scared, but they're really not. I think but part of the reality is that human beings are social creatures, and we just cannot stay locked up indefinitely by ourselves. And so we sort of we desire uh, human communion. And so I think that's what we're seeing. But I wish people would just have a little more critical distance and realize that, mm. uh, look, if the virus is deadly for uh, concert goers and church goers, then it should also be deadly for people celebrating a political election in the streets. But we don't seem to want to apply the consistency of logic to this particular case. Now, it depends on whether you're a Democrat or a um, Republican. Of course, if you're a Democrat, you have this magical power that you are now protected because mm-hmm. because we have the second coming almost in Joe Biden and Kamala I've got to ask you, though, your thoughts on I mean, and for me to say that this is actually happening is very cynical of me because I would never, never do that. Mm-hmm. But we have Governor Cuomo uh, saying that, look, if the vaccine is there, we're not going to release it. We're going to wait and make sure that Joe is in office, first of all, because we don't trust Donald doing the job properly. Mm-hmm. So if the vaccine is a magical vaccine that will save your life. And he delays you getting that vaccine and you have some people that do get very sick and at times pass away. Whose responsibility is that? Is that is that irresponsible? And again, I'm being very cynical here. Mm -hmm. Is that irresponsible and playing politics to the T? Well, it would certainly be uh, morally repugnant if they delayed the release of a useful vaccine. Mm. I don't think in this case that's what happened. I think what happened is that I absolutely think that there were people uh, who who essentially held back the news that this vaccine seems to be successful. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind about that, that uh, the news of the vaccine was delayed. Because, I mean, we've seen the way in which this has been treated uh, politically. And there were people on the left in the United States that were sort of admitting that from the very beginning, Mm. that it might be okay to 
lose a few million jobs temporarily if we could get rid of this terrible bad man that's in the White House. And so I think for many people, that's just exactly how they think. They so oppose the president that that almost anything, any cost is worth uh, paying in order to get get him out of the White House. Mm. That's unfortunate because a, a, a virus is not a partisan thing. It's mm. not a left-right thing. It's going to do what it's going to do. I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical about the vaccine only because we've actually never had an FDA-approved vaccine for a coronavirus in the past. And of course, it's in Pfizer's interest to say that this is going to be very successful. Mm. I hope that we have a good vaccine that doesn't have uh, too many negative consequences, but I don't think that we should be holding out hope for a widespread use of a vaccine in order to justify continued lockdowns. I think what we need to do is stop the lockdowns and focus our attention and our public health dollars and work on those people that are most at risk and let the rest of us get back to living our lives. In Australia, governments use political messaging, opinion polling, and provided little justification for restrictions. Sounds a bit like California. Mm -hmm. Uh, This seems to be at odds with how governments should behave in a pandemic. Is this normal? Well, I think the justification that governments used is that this was a public health emergency. And so, at least in the U.S., individual states have emergency powers in which a government, a governor can effectively uh, uh, declare martial law in case of a you know, catastrophic emergency, an earthquake or a tsunami or something like that. And I think all things being equal, it makes sense that governments should have that power, but they should be very restrained in their use of it. In this case, though, they, they used it not based upon what was actually happening, but based upon computer models predicting what was going to happen and then they use this relentlessly for months and then as you said they essentially use the propaganda power uh, to keep the population in check that's a terrifying thing and I think it's, in part it's terrifying because what if a year from now governments actually need to use their emergency powers and now the pub the public is actually somewhat skeptical at that point I mean what if we have a virus that's truly as deadly as the Spanish flu a year from now um, when they might really needed to have used that power, uh, but unfortunately they've already they, they've already sort of exploited all of the goodwill that we have uh, with the coronavirus, which, as it turns out, um, is for most of the population comparable to to the influenza virus. Interesting that um, religion was really smacked around a bit with uh, the lockdowns. Um, you can't go to church, and it's a very important part of someone's life. If they want to go to church, they need to go to church. And yet a lot of churches are really big. So you can still have your social distancing if you wanted it. Do you think there's another agenda, though? This is, again, off the the track we've been taking. But the narrative of that seems to be that, you know, there's another agenda in play here, that religion is going to take more of a backseat. Well, the, the Christian religion, that is. Well, I, I absolutely think, in, at least in some places, an, an animus toward religion in general and Christianity in particular is clearly at play. I mean, I can tell you here in Washington, D.C., uh, Costco, which is a, a large sort of big box store, um, you can go there as long as you have a mask on and there are thousands of people packed in. On the other hand, if I want to go to the, the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception here in Washington, D.C., which is an enormous facility, it's one of the 10 largest churches in the world, seats 6,000 people, but the city of Washington, D.C. will only allow 100 people in there at once, which is absolutely absurd. Very alone. Um, that that seems to me to be just uh, very biased 
uh, use of criteria because mm. it, look if um, if it's dangerous then it, the the same basic epidemiological facts and numbers of people uh, should apply to the store as apply to the church but it seems to be being applied much more stringently to churches than to, to private businesses. We had a um, a grand final in a one of our football codes here in uh, in Brisbane um, would have been about two three weeks ago. And prior to that, it was that, you know, we have these COVID safe practices in place. And uh, mm-hmm. they said, look, the ground will hold about 40,000. We're only going to take 30,000 or, or less, but, you know, 30,000 is a maximum number. And they achieved that. They got the 30,000 in the ground. But unfortunately, they closed the other areas which you would place people in, in the ground to keep away from the others. They closed <laughs> that down. So you're still knocking each other. And, and I didn't see one mask. And that was a... Um, but you know what? Wow. No one has got sick yet. No one's got the virus yet. That must say something. One, that they really well, love their does. football. And two, they're, just, <laughs> they're right. just, just talking garbage. I mean, it's, it's like, as I said before, it's like a Monty Python skit. It is. I mean, the fact that in the United States, I mean, grocery stores, of course, uh, have stayed open because people have to get groceries and get food. Uh, but there's no evidence that grocery store workers have have uh, caught coronavirus, caught COVID-19 more than, than other people. And so, unfortunately, I think maybe a year from now, we'll be able to look back on this with some critical distance and some rationality. The moment, unfortunately, I think we're still in the middle of the panic. And when you panic, I mean, it's just a fact of human physiology. Uh, you just tend not to think very clearly. And unfortunately, I think we're, we're still in the middle of that. Mm. What do you see happening if we get another wave? Well, I think it's going to depend on what people actually believe. If, of course, we're going to have an increase in cases, uh, it, it's a se- going to be a seasonal virus that will be with us for the rest of human history, just like influenza and the cold virus is. Uh, so you're going to have variations. What people should look for, though, uh, is look and see not if there's an increase in cases, because cases have been redefined to just mean a positive test. That's actually neither here nor there. What's relevant is if you have an increase in deaths and hospitalizations. In the U.S., we're doing well over a million tests every single day. Almost everyone we're testing is asymptomatic. Well, the virus is still out there in the population. So, of course, we're going to pick up many, many positive cases, positive tests. Uh, we're calling those cases even though they're overwhelmingly asymptomatic. A case used to mean someone who was sick and then went into the doctor and got tested, and then they become a case. We're now calling just mere positive tests, even if you're asymptomatic, we're calling that a case. And so watch for the kind of bait and switch in the media in which they talk about increases in cases rather than focusing on deaths and hospitalizations. We should be concerned about deaths and hospitalizations, not so-called cases. Now, social media and the mainstream media fanned panic and fear, undoubtedly. Uh, Other than tightening up on regulation on, uh, say, maybe social media, uh, maybe slapping the journos down a bit in uh, in the other cable and free-to-air media, please tell the truth, in other words. How do we find honest brokers who can help with the dissemination of information and that's including dissenting opinion during times of panic. Well, I would say everyone needs to start now finding sources either on social media or journalistic individuals or entities that you think uh, are willing to stand against the kind of just general popular mayhem and hysteria. Find those people, find those outlets and, and follow them, but also train yourself. Just assume that social media and media are generally incentivized to terrify you. That's what they need to do to get clicks. That's what they want to do. And it's, you essentially discipline yourself so that when you're consuming media and certainly 
normally when you're imbibing social media, you're constantly reminding yourself that there is that bias toward panic and toward fear. Uh, if we don't learn to do that, I mean, the reality is our brains were not adapted for real-time social media. This is a brand new phenomenon in human history, and we're going to have to learn how to consume it if we're going to, or if we're not going to constantly be in a state of panic. You're an educator, and let's go back, say, say 30 years ago, and the campuses, especially uh, schools of journalism and uh, and the like, they were always always had always and it was always pretty cool. You always had that. The, the radical lecturer, the, the radical educator who believed the left. Anyway, let's fast forward now. Mm-hmm. Those, those students are now educating, and we have the permeation of a lot of the students in the media now with that same, with that, because if you didn't agree with the educator, many times you wouldn't have got a pass. So you had to, you, right. you almost indoctrinated. So in that was that our religion, uh, government, uh, big bad people like Donald Trump, all bad. So therefore, we have this collective, mm-hmm. collective, what's the word? This collective thought pattern. Do you think yes. the media has been uh, probably a, a good word is probably abhorrent in the way they've treated the collective with this misinformation? I mean, the media overwhelmingly, if you look at the people that populate the media and journalists are all very biased. First of all, they're very secular and they're very biased toward the left wing Mm. uh, of of the political spectrum. I mean, this is widely known, certainly in the English speaking world. It's just overwhelmingly true. It's the same in the academy. Um, It's not true in the population at large. And if you notice in in the United States, for instance, I think that there's actually a political realignment happening in which you have the kind of knowledge class and the professional class. It's people like us, people that can actually benefit in a, in a digital environment. I, hey, everybody, we got lock, locked down in the United States, and I used the time to write a book, right? Mm. Uh, but if you drive a truck, or you're a farmer, or you're a factory worker, or if you're a service worker, you suffered mightily from this. And I honestly think that in some ways there's a, a strange sort of class di- division, and the journalism in media overwhelmingly speak for one side of that mm. uh, rather than the other. Journalists imagine that they're speaking for the common person, but they don't actually know anyone like that. They might have a housekeeper who cleans their house, but they don't actually know what people that aren't in the digital economy are thinking or what they're suffering. Mm. Um, and so I honestly think, certainly for conservatives, uh, that we, we need to be thinking about that, that this sort of forgotten man, that segment of the population that's truly suffered from the lockdowns. I do think that um, certainly in the developed world and in the Anglosphere, there's a sort of there's a sort of political alignment, realignment happening. And you see it in the recent election, certainly in the United States. I was doing a, a bit of a tabulation of because um, I was looking at the in Australia, we have a, a website called news.com.au, which is a, a news corp mm-hmm. uh, publication. Uh, but it's got a, it's taken a really left turn. So on the on the mm-hmm. Sunday um, on Sunday, they had all these stories, and there was uh, on the masthead or on the uh, the main front page, there were twelve stories, and ten of those were how bad and how stupid, incompetent, evil Donald Trump was, and oh. and it was really, really bad. So I thought I'm just going to check, do a uh, bit of a check on on the the journos or bloggers, mm-hmm. which became a journo once they wrote for the uh, the newspaper. Not one. Right. Everyone was was from the left. Everyone had this opinion on 
you know, how bad Donald is. You know, great news that he's been kicked out. Joe's going to lead us. But no one talked about the other side. And, you know, even now in, in the rest of the world and most of America, we're not going to talk about the elections at the moment because there's nothing to talk about. It's been decided. And I've just, mm-hmm. I just I go back to the media because the, the, the people that are writing this, they went to university. They are educated people. So do the educators then, do you need, instead of saying we need to get better writers or better journos, do we actually say we need to get better educators that can teach the students how to look at both sides and disseminate you know, the right from the wrong? I, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the, there's still a market out there for, for truth. I mean, people are interested still uh, in, in getting objective news. Uh, I mean, it's, it's ironic and somewhat depressing that Rupert Murdoch at News Corp seem now to have abandoned their natural constituency. They're doing that in the United States. Mm. Uh, it's a very strange thing because there's a massive market. Uh, of people that 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 want that and that don't necessarily like the the, the uniform left wing tilt of most of the media, uh, and so someone else that looks like is going to have to emerge uh, that, that's willing to service that market. Um, at the moment, though, like it or not, what we have is the internet. We have. YouTube, we have these social media platforms, as biased as they are, at least at the moment. I mean, here we are, we're speaking uh, across the Pacific Ocean in real time to, to each other. And so uh, as biased as it is, and those who control this, as biased as they are, it's still, um, uh, all that said, still an opportunity for us to get our message out. Now, what's been the reaction to the book from inverted commas, experts, and social media, including mainstream media? Are you looked Upon as a, the, uh, the 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 devil almost. I mean, how dare you sprout such terrible things? Well, I ex- you know honestly that's what I expected, and I mentioned I had one interview that was pulled from YouTube for about two weeks. I found out just today it was actually re- it returned. They they decided okay they they didn't really have a case against it, um, but for the most part we have not received any very strong critique yet. Of course, we were terrified that we'd make some serious serious mistake, but we had a lot of uh, peer review ahead of time, obviously for the book. Um, and so at the moment we have not been I've not been nearly as punished as I would imagine. The worst that's happened to us, of course is that people have said very nasty things about us on Twitter. But I remind myself every day, if that's the worst thing that ever happens to me, then I should count myself lucky. You have a pretty good boss, but he's looking down on you at the moment. So I think you're going to be fine there. (laughs) That's right. Dr. Jay Richards, co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned the Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Great to be with you.